I'm David Mosgraw. Welcome to Open to Debate. Canada is home to several active nuclear power plants and is the second largest uranium producer in the world. Nuclear energy accounts for roughly 15% of the country's energy production, and in Ontario, it accounts for approximately 60% of the province's energy needs. While the popular image of nuclear power is conditioned by infamous historical events, some climate activists and industry professionals advocate it becoming a larger part of our plan to address climate change. And so we ask, how important is nuclear energy to a low-carbon future? My guest on this episode of Open to Debate is Chris Kiefer, ER doctor, founder and director of Doctors for Nuclear Energy, and host of the podcast Decouple. Let's start by sorting out what we're talking about when we talk about nuclear power. I, I suspect the public has certain models and examples in mind, you know, some infamous ones, Three Mile Island, Chernobyl, Fukushima. But when we're talking about nuclear power in 2022 in Canada, what are we talking about? I mean, we're talking about a, especially in Canada, I think that's a, that's a key d- dilemma here and dynamic here that's of a lot of interest. We're talking about a made in Canada uh, climate solution. Um, Canada, uh, during the, the the war and the post-war period, had the second largest um, nuclear uh, nuclear uh, research facilities in the world. Um, Europe basically, outside of you know the Allies in Europe, moved their research facilities over to Canada as a place that was safe from German bombs, um, and that led us to developing a very interesting reactor called the Canada Reactor, which didn't require um, enriched uranium. Um, and which got around the need for a heavy forging industry with a very unique design. Um, and, and so we created this, this made in Canada design, which has really delivered. Um, it wasn't you know, intended as the technology to combat climate change, but right here in Ontario, um, where I live, um, we achieve what's been called North America's greatest greenhouse gas reduction um, through the, the coal phase out, um, mm-hmm. which was powered 90% by nuclear energy and particularly by Kandu reactors. So, um, I guess that's what it means to me in that sense. I'm also a, a medical doctor um, whose training began in the early days of the coal phase out. And, you know, as doctors, we're always careful not to base opinions off of anecdotes, but rather, you know, large double blinded randomized controlled trials. But I can just say anecdotally, I've seen a real drop off in air pollution. So um, that's kind of uh, maybe a cheesy answer of sort of what what Canadian nuclear means to me and, and why I've become an advocate for it. Uh, but certainly something there. I mean, the number of smog days in Ontario plummeted, right, with the phase out, and and that was significant. Because what's the Ontario proportions? Something like what sixty percent now is nuclear power, something give or take. Yeah, sixty to sixty-five percent. Yeah. And you know, obviously, we couldn't have done the coal phase out without it, as you mentioned. Uh, when when we think nuclear power, like I said, we're thinking big old plants. Everyone has in their head. If I say a nuclear power plant, everyone imagines there's a sort of platonic archetypical idea of what that is but the technology is evolving and this is something <laughs> funny enough, I just you know you don't think about it until you think about it and for years if you had said to me nuclear I would have I would have pictured a very particular thing as if the technology has been in stasis and nothing has changed but of course things have changed over the decades and one of the things that keeps coming up is SMRs or small uh, modular reactors how, how has this changed you know uh, conceptions of nuclear power how does that fit into the mix Nuclear power is very interesting. If you think about the unleashing of what's called the strong atomic force equals MC squared. I mean, this was a phenomenon that captured the brightest minds 
uh, you know, from the 1930s right on through to the kind of post-war era into the 1960s for sure, right? And and so it it was actually a very interesting area, and it didn't have the same hangups um, around nuclear weapons, around nuclear accidents in its heyday. I'd say sort of in the in the 50s and 60s, and so there were all different kinds of you know reactor types that were tested, different moderators, um, different types of fuel. Um, and so it's interesting because it's kind of like what's old is new. A lot of the uh, hype around advanced technologies is actually reviving, um, you know, some of the these technologies that were developed in that time period. You know, I really push back against this idea that, you know, the, the existing nuclear plants that we have are sort of old and clunky and dangerous. Um, it simply doesn't uh, add up to scrutiny. Um, you know, one of the accidents you mentioned um, that I think influenced a lot of people in North America is, is Three Mile Island. Um, and when we talk about nuclear accidents, they're often framed as, you know, even catastrophes. What happened at Three Mile Island was you had a fairly new, um, actually a brand new pressurized water uh, reactor. It had a core meltdown. Um, the amount of radiation released exposed no one in the general public to more than a chest X-ray, which, you know, mm -hmm. I order those every day on patients. You know, patients come in begging me to scan their two-year-old with a, with a much higher dose of radiation for a minor head injury, for instance. Um, and no one was no one was hurt. It was a very costly um, industrial accident for the people that had invested in that plant. But this this was not a catastrophe in, in the history of, you know, civilian nuclear power. There's there's not been a single death as a result of radiation uh, in North America. We can talk about other examples later. But the existing technology is is doing quite well. There's plants that are being relicensed um, to up to 80 years now. So this is an incredibly durable technology. You know, when you have the kind of safety cultures um, and regula regulation environments that we have, these things are, are kind of built like cathedrals or pyramids even. Um, they're so overbuilt um, and the parts are so, um, you know, you can really swap out the internals um, of a reactor with a couple exceptions. Um, and so these, these things can run a long time and really have an excellent safety record. And, and, you, and that's the same in, in Canada as well. And especially when you compare those to other technologies and when you sort of empirically look at it, um, you know, with this metric of, you know, deaths per terawatt hours, which is a little bit dark, you see that nuclear stands out as really the safest dispatchable form of electricity generation by far. Um, so I, I kind of push back against that idea. Certainly the technology is evolving with our can-do fleet. Um, there has been, while it's a similar design, we've learned a lot in terms of new alloys that make our pressure tubes last a lot longer. Um, but I'd say another thing that's really neglected is the human factors element. And so, you know, nuclear is really, really interesting because instead of using, you know, a carbon emitting expensive fuel like um, coal or natural gas, um, we use uranium, which is really, really cheap, actually. Um, but it relies on those human resources. So, you know, a typical uh, can-do site in Canada has uh, a permanent staff of, you know, between 2000 to 3000 employees, and they work together for in many cases for generations now, um, and develop really important team dynamics. And I know I've become really fascinated recently, just uh, as a little side interest, looking at um, aviation safety and, and sort mm. of forensic analyses of aviation accidents. And, you know, both are, you know, both, both flight um, and jet traffic in particular and nuclear are interesting because there's a high potential for, for danger. If you think about flying through a pressurized metal tube, 30,000 feet above the earth, often over, you know, vast expansive oceans. This is kind of an insane activity to engage mm -hmm. in, <laughs> but through, through excellent, um, you know, pilot training, crew training through a, you know, a really stringent regulatory environment through learning from mistakes and accidents. Um, it's statistically way safer than driving for instance. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's the best way to rapidly get from, from point A to point B, if those points are far apart. And, you know, I'm going to, 
posit the thesis that nuclear energy is the best way um, to deal with climate change, um, to electrify everything. Um, and, and it really has the evidence based uh, to, to back it. So um, while there are um, interesting advances into um, this, this SMR concept and, and various sort of advanced nuclear technologies, um, it, I, they shouldn't. They certainly shouldn't be used um, as a way to denigrate the existing technologies, which are performing better than they ever have. You know, our, our CANDU reactors used to run at a capacity factor, so the amount of energy they produced versus their potential was something like 60, 70 percent initially, and now we're running them at 94 percent. So, if anything. I don't want to make the sort of like it's like a good wine, but certainly they're they're producing more power than ever. We know more about the reactor and how it behaves than ever. We've learned from some near misses and you know know how to run these things. So it's just an amazing technology. Um, you know, it's it's discovery uh, in the '50s and '60s and it's build out. We we've learned a lot. Um, and I'm I'm getting a little long winded here, but I think you can you can see the point I'm making that that the existing fleet is is doing an amazing job and compared to any other form of dispatchable. Um, electricity generation is, you know, empirically the safest. I, I, I want to come back to obviously the, the climate question because that's central to the whole thing here. But first I want to touch on something that you raised, which is the, the statistical uh, impact of it in terms of, of human safety. I, you know, the, I studied cognitive bias when I was doing my PhD in political science, and this is mm-hmm. one of our fundamental cognitive biases, is that big, shiny, extraordinary, explosive examples stand out and make things seem more dangerous than they are, right? Uh, we don't think of the, the number of deaths from coal plants right. uh, from, from pollution, right? Because it's hard to see that. There's no one single big event. But of course, you could always think of Chernobyl because it's an extraordinary event. Same with a plane crash, right? But you never think when you're driving down the 417 or the uh, you know, the 401 about mm-hmm, mm-hmm. just how dangerous and absurd that thing that you're doing is, right? <laughs> Which, of course, yeah, of yeah. course it is. So I, I do I do very much agree with you. And part of the reason I wanted to talk about this, the way we think of nuclear is because uh, our, our risk assessment of it is just compromised by a few, you know, a extraordinary incidences that come to mind very easily. Right. Which is, if it you know, bleeds, something. it leads. Yeah, exactly. And, yeah. and of course, you're taught about these things. You hear about them all the time. You don't hear about a single death from air pollution, right? It's harder to. Right. So right. I just wanted to point that out for to, to build off that point because I, I happen to be uh, sympathetic to it. Now mm-hmm. I want to come back to the good. We've sort of covered the, the extraordinarily frightening, unlikely, but I want to come to the to the good, which is uh, the, the potential climate impact of tra- uh, transitioning to a higher uh, nuclear load. Uh, we're at you know Canada wide right now. What is it about fifteen percent of the of the national energy production, give or take? Yeah. yeah. Uh, what What do we need to get to? I mean, for this to be a climate solution, what What does that process look like, and what are, What are we aiming to get to? Well, I mean, specific to Canada, um, you know, we we overall, if you look at our national emissions profile from electricity, it's it's pretty decent. It's not what mm-hmm. we need. Um, it's about one hundred and fifty grams of CO two per kilowatt hour, um, and. Uh, but there's big the outliers. So, you know, places that have abundant hydro like Quebec, Manitoba and BC have, you know, maybe grids that are five, six grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. And that's particularly impressive for Quebec because, um, you know, they are able to heat with hydroelectricity and, and meet some of those other difficult to decarbonize sectors, right? Because electricity is only about 20% of what we need to do. We need to decarbonize cement, uh, steel, uh, industrial process heat, as well as, you know, heating and cooling. Um, so basically, you know, 
We have Alberta, that's just big outlier. They're sitting at about 600 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So you can see that big spread. Um, mm -hmm. Ontario has hydro. Um, it's run of river hydro. So it's it's not dispatchable in that sense that we can use it to peak, but it, it does some base load. And between hydro and nuclear in Ontario, that meets about 80 to 90% of our, our needs. Um, and we burn a little bit of gas. Um, so our grid is about 40, 50 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. So you can see the kind of the kind of spread that exists there. Of note, if you look worldwide at large economies around the world, there's only eight or nine that have achieved what we'll say is deep decarbonization. And that's sort of under 50 grams of CO2 per kilowatt hour. And those are jurisdictions, again, like Norway, um, that, that have basically hydro to meet all of their needs. Um, but in the absence of, you know, being incredibly well endowed with hydro, the other, the other countries, large economies that have achieved decar deep decarbonization have done so with a combination uh, of nuclear and hydro. So that would be places like France, which has, uh, you know, 75% electricity coming from nuclear, but also other European countries like Belgium and Switzerland, which unfortunately are all in engaged in, uh, in nuclear phase outs um, and likely to see their emissions go up. You know, nuclear is, you know, all energy sources come with some challenges and drawbacks, right? Um, in terms of the tools in our arsenal to achieve net zero, um, certainly the way to do that, um, that's kind of most um, adopted by, by mainstream think tanks is we need to electrify everything. Mm -hmm. um, that involves growing our grid by two to three times. And we haven't seen that kind of growth since the 50s and 60s, you know, the, the regulated monopolies adding on five to 7% of generation per year, you know, kind of grow, grow, grow mentality. We sort of need to do that again, not, not because we're consuming that much power, but because we need to build that amount of clean power. Hydro and geothermal are, are limited by, by geography. So what we're left with in terms of potentially scalable solutions to replace the services, the wonderful services that fossil fuels offer us, um, are wind and solar and nuclear. And we already have the evidence, I think. The evidence is already in. I'm not sure how much further we need to go down um, these, these pathways, but you have a country like Germany, which has invested over half a trillion euros um, in a mostly wind and solar buildout while they while they actually tear down their perfectly good nuclear facilities. And they've only achieved a very moderate degree of decarbonization. They've, despite, um, you know, how cheap apparently wind and solar are to install, they have some of the most expensive electricity in the EU. Um, and they're really heading towards a, a very unstable grid if they continue on this pathway. So in my mind, it's, you know, I, I'm trained in, in evidence-based medicine. I, I like to look at, you know, what is the high quality evidence to be very empiric. Um, and I've arrived at, at being an advocate for nuclear technology, as strange as that is, um, you know, based on a, on, a, on a sober assessment of that evidence and seeing, seeing what has worked and what is working currently and what is not working. What's driving the, the denuclearization in, in Germany and Switzerland? Is it um, a sort of fear-mongering? I've, I've looked into this in terms of, you know, what is it about the, the German psyche that are that is so anti-nuclear? I think part of it is, you know, let's face it, they were on the front lines of the Cold War. Their country was split in two. If, if you know, a nuclear war was to take off, Germany would likely, you know, be at the front of those consequences. Mm -hmm. So certainly that's, that's a very rational explanation. I've had it explained to me as well that Germany sort of has this paradoxical... Um, a cultural identity of being, you know, a nation of engineers and Nobel prizes, but also a real nation of, of kind of mysticism and romanticism and homeopaths. And there's that kind of tension and, and the naturalistic fallacy runs strong. Mm -hmm. um, but from, again, from a climate sense, it's completely illogical um, in the midst of, of an energy crisis that Europe's facing where their energy costs are just skyrocketing. 
um, as a result of uh, real dependence on natural gas um, paired with renewables, which are just really underperforming this year for whatever reason, the winds are not blowing well in Europe. Um, they're shutting off um, quite a large amount of, you know, ultra low carbon nuclear energy, which again, the, the, uh, the UN recently restudied the life cycle emissions. So from mining, milling, you know, the use in the power plants, the construction of the power plants, the disposal of the waste um, has the lowest carbon emissions of any power source, um, far lower than, than even wind and solar. Uh, what about, I mean, I want to touch on it briefly and then move on, but um, what about nuclear waste? I mean, this seems, this is obviously a certain concern, but I think people mm -hmm. maybe imagine there's more waste produced than is actually produced. Uh, how do we manage the, the sort of safe maintenance of, of waste? Sure, sure. I mean, just zooming out for a second, I think it's it's very interesting um, the the way that people apply optimism and pessimism to technologies. Um, <laughs> for me, you know, when you when you kind of uh, abstract this and look at storage problems that we face, we're constantly told that you know an intermittent um, wind and solar heavy grid will eventually be balanced by some miraculous um, form of storage that's yet to be invented. Um, I think in the battle between platitudes and physics, physics is always going to win. And, and I <laughs> you think like a battery is, storage solution. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, if you look, if you look at the scalability of that, um, the U.S. with all of its current battery uh, storage, including car batteries, for instance, has less than two minutes to to power the national grid. So a, a 10x investment in that at enormous cost and enormous amount of minerals mined and environmental devastation of that might get them to 20 minutes. Um, you know, we face continent-wide um, doldrums of wind and, and cloudy days that can last a week. Um, and that can happen, you know, every 10, 15 years. Um, and we need a grid that's, you know, again, if we electrify everything, it needs to be ultra, ultra reliable electricity. Um, my hospital can't afford to have a prolonged blackout. The ventilators will shut off. The dialysis machines will go down. The lights will go down in the operating room. People take for granted, um, you know, the 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 wonderful um, and almost miraculous, you know, machine that the grid is. But you know, getting back to uh, to this other storage issue, the issue of of waste. Um, you know, there's there's two solutions for nuclear waste. Um, right now, you know, in the early days of nuclear energy, we thought uranium was very limited. And so um, it was certainly thought that within 10 or 15 years, we'd be moving um, from our current technology to um, which is involves, you know, slowing down neutrons to keeping fast neutrons going. And therefore, we'd be able to recycle our nuclear waste. Um, and, and breed new nuclear fuel. I mean, I don't want to get into the engineering of that, but that reactor technology exists and is in operation um, in Russia, for instance. Um, so that's certainly, I think, the long-term solution for nuclear waste. We only are able to extract about 5% of the energy from uh, our current uh, reactor fleet. We could get the other 90, 95% out, which is, which is pretty exciting. For me, you know, the nuclear waste issue in the, in the history of the storage of civilian nuclear waste, which is mostly on site at the plants, which tells you something about how, how dense you uranium is because of, you know, if you produced a ton of waste, you wouldn't be able to store it on, on site. Um, in the history of, of the storage of civilian nuclear waste, there's not been a single documented death. So, I mean, that's pretty extraordinary. It's, it's um, you know, a hazard, but we know a lot about how to shield radiation and, and, um, and how to store nuclear waste. The other option, which I think makes, makes less sense if you, if you kind of zoom out at it, um, is to bury the waste deep underground. Right. And there's right. all kinds of engineered barriers, you know, for that to stand up to wear and tear over potentially a few thousand years. Um, you know, those engineered barriers, I think people always are, are a little bit um, concerned about, um, you know, there can be unanticipated consequences there. But, you know, it was talking to a geologist that really sort of put my mind at ease about this. Um, the rock formation that we're looking at here in Canada for the storage of that nuclear waste, um, it's going to be 600 meters underground. 
Um, and it's going to be hundreds of meters below any water tables, but it's in a rock formation where it takes water 1 million years to move a meter. And the mechanism for, you know, nuclear waste, which is solid ceramic pellets, you know, again, wrapped in all of these engineered barriers, the mechanism for that waste to get up and harm someone is water needs to percolate through the rock, break down all of those engineered barriers, dissolve a ceramic. So think like dissolve your coffee cup, essentially. Right. And then in, you know, in solution to you know, bring those radionuclides through the rock and out into the biosphere, moving through hundreds of meters of rock with the porosity, um, you know, which only allows water to move a, a meter in a million years. I mean, so for me, that's, that's really a, a solved problem, but maintaining this as a, as a, well, there's no solution to nuclear waste um, is a real uh, arrow in the quiver of the anti-nuclear, uh, you know, activists. And, and I think it's, it's really misplaced. I, I'm a very humanist person. I'm constantly astounded at the ways in which human beings are able to problem solve. Um, and, and I think this is a problem that, that is basically solved. Um, the Finns are building a deep geologic repository right now as we speak. Um, and there's no reason why, why both of those options shouldn't be you know, sufficient to, to deal with the challenge of nuclear waste. In that case, I want to move on to more, uh, I think, plausible challenges. And that includes, broadly speaking, cost, but more particular, sure. uh, plant construction and maintenance. Uh, you know, these are costly long-term commitments. Doesn't mean they're not worth it amortized, but they, they're capital heavy. And as you mentioned, yeah. they're human resource heavy to maintain. Uh, on the climate front, we don't have a ton of time. Uh, can we get these things going into scale in time? You know, while I'm an advocate for this technology, I'm a realist. And, you know, we are, I think, on the verge of another nuclear renaissance. We talked about that in the early 2000s during worries about peak oil before the fracking revolution. You know, high fossil fuel prices get people talking seriously about nuclear energy. And we have in Europe, uh, you know, a real pivot on nuclear energy from France. You know, there was a plan to phase down to 50% from 75% for no good reason that I could detect. And now they're talking about building 14 large, um, you know, the largest reactors actually in the world, the, the EPR design. Um, I'm really worried about the West's ability to deliver this. I mean, I'm worried about the West's ability to, to build a hydro dam um, or to build a bridge, any large infrastructure project, uh, because we've we've sort of moved towards a highly financialized economy um, and we've offshored most of our productive capacity and a lot of our, our engineering and, and construction experience. Um, there's kind of a, a nuclear secret sauce to uh, that I that I kind of label. Um, and, and it's this fact that, you know, in a number of jurisdictions over time, um, we've been very good at building nuclear on, on budget and on time. And that would be, you know, the, uh, the build out in the States in the 60s and 70s. Um, you know, Ontario did a great job in the 70s and 80s. Uh, Pickering came in, Pickering A came in totally on budget um, and actually built earlier than anticipated. Uh, the French did a great job. Um, and then we moved kind of past the torch on to Japan, um, South Korea, and now China is, is doing a great job. Um, there are sort of political factors there. Um, as you were saying, nuclear is very capital intensive, as you're saying, amortized, uh, especially over, you know, plants that are now looking like they're going to run for 80 years. Um, it's, it's a very strategic investment, but that is a real upfront challenge. Um, and at a time of historically low interest rates, if the government moves into the de-risk this, and we mm -hmm. have patient capital sitting around like big pension funds, um, to me, this is a real no brainer. Um, 
and a real possibility. But you need you need that sort of environment um, where I think there's a certain degree of government support to de-risk the capital. Um, you need a workforce. You need to develop um, the human resources. Um, building a nuclear plant is it's built to really stringent conditions. Things as simple as you know a, a missed concrete pour or not laying the rebar rate can have major impacts on construction schedules. Um, and so you need that experience. Um, and I think we can regain that in the West. I think we really need to, not just for the sake of nuclear, but just for the sake of kind of prospering as societies and reversing the decline that's come with financialization and offshoring. Um, but we need to study that and, and put that in place and do it quickly. Because as you said, time is a little limited. Again, we don't just need um, deep decarbonization um, in, in 10 years that, that needs to be rebuilt every 20 to 30 years as wind and solar do, we need durable deep decarbonization. And again, looking at the limited options that we have, you can slap up um, you know, wind turbines and solar panels, at least for the, the builder, that's quite cheap. As I've said before, the, the, it's, a, it's a very cheap way to make expensive electricity. Um, but, uh, but they don't deliver on deep decarbonization because they're intermittent and require that miraculous storage solution, which for now um, and into the foreseeable future is natural gas. Um, so uh, yes, it's, it's a challenge, um, but it's one I think we really, we need to sort out. Now that challenge you mentioned, you know, construction, labor, I mean, operating labor obviously is critical too. I mean, having the engineers to do the work, it's sort of like saying we're going to open more hospital beds, but then not have physicians and nurses to staff them, which <laughs> that, not that, that I'm thinking that, of any province in particular. Home, man. Yeah. <laughs> I, you know, this is, it's, it's one thing to, to build it. The other is, of course, to staff it. I mean, is this, yeah. so we're taking long-term in terms of, you know, having an engineer core and so on and so forth to run yeah. these things too, right? I mean, it's, but I mean, yeah. presumably and it can be done. It has been done elsewhere. Oh, I mean, it's been done and, here. And it's a reason, I mean, it's a reason why it's such a tragedy that Germany is shutting down its its nuclear fleet, again, for, for no climate reason that I can see, or, or for no economic reason, those plants are, are paid off. Um, but yeah, those human resources are precious. In Canada, we're really blessed with that. We have 76,000 people working in the sector. They're basically all unionized, um, making six-figure or close to six-figure salaries. Um, you know, right from the uranium mine, which is here in Canada, to the milling operations here in Canada, the pelleting, um, the power facilities, the storage, et cetera. This is a real um, good thing for the Canadian economy um, compared to buying um, foreign-made solar panels or wind turbines or, or importing U.S. natural gas. Um, every, every dollar invested in nuclear in Canada, especially in existing can-do technology, um, stays right here. And, you know, I have roots um, in the left. I'm, I'm sort of, uh, I don't see much in the post left or the modern left that I can identify with, but uh, certainly I carry those commitments to, to, uh, to labor in particular. Um, and when we talk about a just transition, it's something that nuclear can really deliver and has delivered. Um, the coal phase in Ontario meant that workers in those coal plants seamlessly transitioned into nuclear plants, um, had a occupationally much safer environment, um, but kept the same kind of jobs rooted in communities that thrive. Um, and again, I, I don't mean to keep sort of bashing on and answering every question with a, with, a, with a negative comment about wind and solar. But again, these are the scalable solutions. We need to look at them in context. Um, in terms of a just transition, um, if we just focus on the solar supply chain, 40% um, of the world's polysilicon, the vital ingredient for solar panels, comes out of Western China, where there's credible allegations of forced labor from um, you know, an imprisoned uh, ethnic minority population, the Uyghurs. Um, and 
Canada, the States, the West is, um, and Western workers are reduced to basically being solar panel installers, which is unskilled labor um, at facilities that, you know, they don't have a parking lot, right? Um, the whole power of labor to negotiate itself high wages and good working conditions rests in their ability to either strike or to threaten to strike. And wind and solar facilities are workerless facilities. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the, the kind of the left, I think, has this fantasy that, you know, if, if you say it, it shall be done and we can you just regulate very high wages and union jobs um, at wind and solar construction sites. Uh, but it's, it's really a, a world of difference. So, you know, for for just transition reasons, that's 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 another strong reason why of the available scalable options that I find myself in, in team nuclear. Yeah, you know, it's it's I find that quite compelling, too, in part, you know, I'm from Peterborough and um uh, which has its own, you know, hand in the nuclear industry, uh, and yep. has for some time. Um, there are towns like Peterborough that uh, could use facilities, and jobs like that, right? That we, you know, right. ought to be thinking about. I mean, it really is. Peterborough was sort of like a post-industrial town yeah. uh, that yeah. collapsed a lot in, in the manufacturing collapse. But there are a few, you know, there were key industries that kept that city going. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that community aspect of it's not uh, it's certainly not negligible, uh, but you know, broadly related to that, what about operating costs? I mean, is there a concern that the sort of you know per kilowatt hour that the consumer is paying uh, is going to be higher than than alternatives? No, and I mean you, you can find objective data on that in terms of the Ontario grid, um, which unfortunately it's it's we have very expensive electricity here, and that has a lot to do with uh, our Green Energy Act and our decision to invest. Uh, tens of billions of dollars in a, in a wind and solar buildout, which which really didn't add much to our already deeply decarbonized grid. Mm. Um, but um, you know the price of hydro is around five or six cents per kilowatt hour. Nuclear is about seven eight. Um, natural gas is about fifteen. Um, wind and solar, which got these insane twenty year locked in contracts where they're paid for every kilowatt produced, regardless if it's needed or not. And our wind produces out of phase with demand. It, it you know kicks ass in the in the spring and fall. But you know as you know on those hot humid summer days, um, where you beg for a breeze, <laughs> it doesn't show up. Um, they get yeah. paid, you know, solar gets paid forty four cents per kilowatt hour. That's seven or eight times uh, the, the cost of nuclear. So no, again the cost of nuclear really um, sits a lot in in those initial capital costs and paying off the interest rates. Um, and that's again what's what's made nuclear expensive in the West. Um, Hinkley Point, uh, one of the UK's only new builds at the moment, um, it's anticipated that two thirds of the cost of that plant is going to be interest payments because they're they're you know the usurious interest rates because it's mm-hmm. a, it's a, thought of as a risky investment nine percent, right? Which is insane in, in the current environment. Like we we're really missing an opportunity here of historically low interest rates. Um, you know to to invest in in this you know what I think is the 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 main tool we have to fight climate change, at least for the the sort of electricity side of things. Is it something that, well, I want to come at this a question of, of de-risking investment by way sure. of a broader question, which is, you know, what are the barriers right now to establishing more nuclear power in Canada? Um, I mean, presumably the one is capital, is generating capital. And then that's why I'm thinking of de-risking. I mean, I've been I've been hesitating. I've been trying my best not to say this the whole conversation, but, you know, we yeah. bought a pipeline. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no. I, I had this really, I had this really interesting in, interaction with our our new minister of environment and climate change, uh, Stephen Gilbo at COP twenty six, um, who has a you know a vowed history of anti nuclearism. Mm-hmm. He's been a Greenpeace <laughs> campaigner, founded 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, he he dangled off the CN Tower a number of years ago and got a year of probation and a fifty thousand dollars fine. I mean, he's he's I, I admire the activism, but I think he's really misguided. So I confronted him about that at COP, and I said, you know, given the IPCC scientific consensus, you know, all four principal decarbonization pathways um, point to an increased use of nuclear energy. Given that, you know. Are your old sort of ideological commitments potentially going to cloud you um, in your new position? And he he steadfastly <clears throat> refused to answer that and said, no, we're going to leave it up to the market, you know, which basically is inferring that, again, <sighs> wind and solar are cheap, nuclear is expensive. No comment on the fact that they provide radically different services in terms of, you know, that that essential thing for the grid. Um, which is which is reliability, but exactly what you're saying. I mean, this government um, and this minister saying, well, the market will decide. I mean, the government bought a pipeline. They bailed out Muskrat Falls. Like I was saying, the West just mm. sucks at building any large-scale infrastructure to the tune of $6 billion. They own a 10% stake in the Hibernia oil field. Um, so no, I mean, it's not just in trans-provincial areas that they've intervened, but they've intervened you know, in province. So to me, we're facing a very interesting conundrum in Ontario right now where, again, we're a world-leading decarbonized grid um, because of a choice to spend tens of billions on wind and solar instead of that money on on refurbishing um, the Pickering nuclear plant. We're going to see that plant close. We're going to see 3,000 uh, direct, highly skilled jobs um, lost. And this is crazy, but with that single plant closing, and it gives you a sense of just how powerful nuclear energy is as a decarbonizer, we're going to, in you know, in the morning that that plant comes offline, we're going to lose one third of the um, of the of the progress we've made um, nationally in our emissions reductions. We peaked in uh, 2007 um, because of the oil patch. Largely, um, Canada's really a laggard in terms of reducing its total greenhouse gas emissions. Um, so even that small amount of progress, um, one third of it will be reversed when we substitute natural gas um, for the nuclear at Pickering. Um, so, so that's kind of one of, one of the sort of battles I'm engaged in. Um, and I, and I think a really important one. When's Pickering slated to go offline? Um, 2024, possibly 2025. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, it's funny because, you know, as, as, as someone who very improbably has become a self-identified nuclear advocate, I mean, I never dreamed of this. My, my background is in, you know, refugee and migrant health advocacy, um, you know, a number of other, a number of other causes. Um, but I, I find myself in this position and I think often people question my motivations. I mean, it puzzles them that I'm a, I'm a doctor. I'm a, you know, I'm a well-paid doctor with no need to sort of shill for an industry, but I actually end up <laughs> pissing off a lot of people in the industry because, you know, Ontario Power Generation, which owns all three of our nuclear sites and operates uh, Pickering and Darlington, have decided to throw Pickering under the bus, replace it with uh, $3 billion of gas plants. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and allow Ontario's emissions to jump from world leading to, to middle of the pack, you know, going the exact opposite direction and erasing one third of Canada's national greenhouse gas emissions. I mean, it's, to me, it's shocking. Um, and we need to think big, right? There's a recent report from Clean Energy Canada saying we need to double the size of our grid, uh, to pursue this electrify everything net zero commitment. Again, this this harkens back to the kind of growth we saw in, in, in electricity production in the 50s and 60s, adding 6-7% of uh, new capacity per year. That takes a radically different um, political framework, um, and mm -hmm. it takes it's going to take government coordination. And so as insane as it seems, um, you know, you know, my, my sort of immodest proposal is that the federal government step in, um, you know, uh, take an equity stake in Pickering, de-risk the capital that will come in and get that plant refurbished. We know there's no technological reason we can't do it. Um, and, you know, save our, our emissions reductions and, and, you know, 
um, continue continue this legacy of Canadian nuclear and hopefully build some more Cando units. Um, you know that that report again says we'll need the equivalent of 96 new large Cando reactors to achieve this goal of electrify everything in Canada. We, we've built 20 in the history of Canada so far. Or we'll need uh, 112 site C dams. And if you want to talk about how controversial a large right. energy infrastructure is, you know, look no further. And and we we export Cando reactors as well, right? We have the yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's not just building them here. No, we've done in Argentina, um, in India, in uh, in China, um, and in South Korea as well. Um, you know, we have to compete with the big boys south of the border, which has been a little bit tricky. And bizarrely enough, you know, this is uh, billions of dollars that we've invested in in the research and development of Kandu. Uh, the Harper government sold it for 15 million um, to SNC Lavalin. Strangely enough, so something's got to change in terms of policy, but. Um, you know, while I while I support um, SMRs, I think they have a role to play in smaller grids. Our ambitions need to be much higher. We need to grow our grids, and we need large nuclear for that. And I think Candu offers an ideal solution uh, with a 96% made in Canada supply chain. If we've learned one thing from the West's uh, failures at building nuclear recently, it's that we can't put our faith in a shiny new design. We need to probably be very humble. Um, and do what we know works and, and what we have expertise in. And Canada is lucky. You know, our largest national infrastructure project is the refurbishment of our existing Canada units at, at Bruce and Darlington. It's a $26 billion project. It's, um, you know, built a strong supply chain and, you know, workforce that's intimately familiar with the inner workings of Kandu. Mm-hmm. Um you know, it's it's the sort of fiscally and technologically conservative bet, um, which I think you know I've spent a lot of time trying to understand um, the nuclear secret sauce. I think that's really um, what what needs to be done. Uh, but again, I'm I'm a bit of a lonely voice in the wilderness here, making making a lot of enemies and not too many friends. Well, I mean, you made a friend here, so I mean, as a consolation prize. <laughs> I appreciate, that. I, I appreciate it. that. I find it compelling. I've been saying this for a little while now, but increasingly compelling. And I do think, I mean, I do fundamentally think it's it's a political problem. I'm getting mm-hmm. the sense that it's first and foremost a political problem. Uh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I think attitudes, attitudes are shifting. Um, the, the industry itself does an absolutely terrible job of public relations. I think they're happy to sort of lurk in the shadows and be the, the elephant in the room that's getting the heavy lifting done, certainly in Ontario on electricity and decarbonization. But they've, I think they've sort of thought, well, it's better if no one really notices us and we just keep on chugging along with what we do because there's such um, heated feelings about it. But we're, we're moving into a phase where, you know, it's kind of do or die on climate. Um, and again, we have a basket of available tools to do that. And I think we have the experience looking around the world um, at, you know, the fastest decarbonizations and deep decarbonizations getting down to those, you know, less than 50 uh, gram per kilowatt hour grids. We've seen that in France. We've seen that in Ontario. If you don't have hydro, it's it's nuclear. Um, and we've seen the consequences of massive investments in wind and solar. And, and they, you know, as popular as that technology is, as, as amazing, you know, and sort of it stands in contrast to nuclear marketing as, as amazing as they've done, um, uh, you know, selling the technology and building off the naturalistic fallacy, that technology, unfortunately, just does not deliver. Well, um, that brings us to time. But I, I mean, I've certainly found the, the case compelling and I'll, I'll encourage people to. Uh, to check out your organization. I mentioned it in the intro. Uh, I'll mention it again. Uh, Doctors for Nuclear Energy. There's also a book that sort of led me a little bit to this called A Bright Future uh, uh, by Joshua Goldstein and 
a second author whose name I cannot recall, but <laughs> a second author uh, that you can check out as well. Uh, Stefan yeah. Stefan Kvist is the other guy. And if there I can, it is. Take, yes. If I could take a shameful moment for, for other self-promotion. Um, I have a, a podcast for about 120 episodes in now, downloaded in 100 countries around the world. Uh, it's a bit wonky, but it's, uh, it really dives into... Uh, the questions of what we call decoupling, which is this idea of, of uh, evaluating the technologies that we have and that we'll develop um, and basically finding ways to decouple human flourishing from ecological impacts. And nuclear has been a real kind of star of the show. But if you want to learn a lot more, um, decouple media, um, you know, if you look for uh, decouplepodcast.org, you'll find that. And then if you're in Canada, um, I'm the president of Canadians for Nuclear Energy, and you can find us at um, www.c number four ne.ca um, and we're we're looking for new members and i think we've got some compelling stuff up there well that's perfect and i i do highly recommend the podcast i listen to it in preparation for this uh and, and i know the sort of people who listen to this are the sort of people you're after so i would highly recommend to folks get in touch to have a look because uh, i know the folks who are listening to this are the people who can make this sort of thing happen and i suppose i would ask you to ask yourself what's our plan here and what's right. in the way well, thanks again. I thank you, uh, first and foremost, to you for joining me here today. This was a fantastic discussion that I very much appreciate. And my pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I'm a, I'm a fan of your show as well. Oh, thank you. And, and as always, thank you uh, uh, to Carolyn Smith and to Aaron Reynolds who make the show not just possible, but far better than it would be without them. So thanks to all, and we'll see you back here in two weeks. <laughs>